0: Acts chapter 17 today is where we'll be. Rachel and I finally watched Black Panther the other night. There's a scene where the cinematography conveys a clear message about the villain. Uh, basically, you've got this kingdom called Wakanda. Wakanda. And there's a villain named Killmonger. And Killmonger takes the throne, and as he does, the screenshot, if you notice, uh, begins upside down and then uh, rotates slowly. Killmonger is about to turn Wakanda upside down. And it's not good. Well, in our passage today, we encounter a crowd of people who charge some Christians with turning the world upside down. They see the gospel of Christ as threatening the Roman world, as threatening their king. But what we learn in the process is this it's not that Jesus' followers turn the world upside down. The world is already upside down. The gospel reveals a Savior who is turning the world right side up. To the world, this appears to be an awful thing. But to those who know Christ, it's the greatest thing for the world. Only we must see this as well today. The world's transformation doesn't come by jealous defiance and political upheaval. It comes through the humble, patient preaching of the gospel. So I want you to watch for these themes today as we read through and study Acts 17. We're going to begin in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue... Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds." Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we would give it our due attention this morning. Christ taught his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. We can do nothing now. We can do nothing later that would bring you honor. And so we ask for your help. Help us to abide in Christ, Lord, as we listen his word and seek to apply it in coming days. In Jesus' name, amen. What is Acts? Acts is an account of the risen Jesus advancing his kingdom through the Holy Spirit, empowering his people to spread the gospel to all nations. Acts is an account of the risen Jesus advancing his kingdom through the Holy Spirit, empowering his people to spread the gospel to all nations. That's Acts in a nutshell. And since chapter 13, we've witnessed Jesus advancing his kingdom to the ends of the earth. Roman cities hear the good news. A wealthy, religious, businesswoman... Here's the good news, an oppressed slave girl, a harsh jailer, each hear the good news. Jesus now leads Paul and his team further west in Macedonia, and they enter two new cities, Thessalonica and Berea. And we find them sharing the good news once again. But if we want to grasp Luke's message here, we need to see how Paul's ministry in Thessalonica is similar and different from his ministry in, and, and experiences in Berea. And it's by setting these, these two accounts side by side that we'll see meaning that we may not have noticed otherwise. And so here's what I want to do. I want to walk you through these two episodes and compare them to, to each other as we do and we're going to, we'll, we will see what Luke's message is for his readers. And then I want to tease out six further implications this passage has for our lives. So first things first. Let's see how this section works. Uh, how does Luke set it up? Uh, what's he trying to convey by by setting Paul's ministry in Thessalonica next to his ministry in Berea? And he outlines them essentially in the same way. Manner. And you'll see what I mean on the screen with the verse references. Luke wants us to contrast these two accounts. So let's check it out. He begins in each case with a travel summary and Paul entering the synagogue. Verse 1 Now, when he had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then verse 10, when he's in Berea. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So Luke takes us from one city to the next, and then he highlights Paul's usual practice of finding a Jewish synagogue. What's the point there? Well, he's finding a venue in which he can share Christ. That's the next parallel. Paul preaches Christ from the scriptures. Look at verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, we don't get everything Paul teaches. Luke gives a summary. Paul opens up what we call the Old Testament, and he explains how the Christ, their Messiah, had to suffer and rise from the dead. He's following Jesus in this, if you remember, Luke chapter 24, verse 45. Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Paul is not only following the way Jesus taught the Scriptures, he is fulfilling the way Jesus said the Scriptures would be fulfilled as he preaches. Paul proclaims Christ to all nations and offers forgiveness in his name. And we don't have to guess what the content of his message was. If, we, if you look back at Acts 13, for example, uh, where you get a much longer sermon from, from, from Paul, just in Acts 13 alone, Paul quotes from Exodus Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 55, and Habakkuk 1. And he shows how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection culminates and fulfills that storyline. Christ had to suffer in order to glorify God in saving his people. Christ had to rise, to defeat death, take the throne, and guarantee the final kingdom and restoration of all things. And more than that, we have two letters that he wrote to the Thessalonians, and there he outlines what he taught them. Paul reasoned with them about how God saves through his Christ, and then he says, okay, now that you have your Bibles open, now that you have seen what he was going to do through his Christ's suffering and through his Christ rising, let me tell you his name. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. How do I know that? Because unlike anybody else, God raised Jesus from the dead. And here's what that means for your life. Renounce your idols. Rest in his grace. Paul preaches the same way in Berea, but this time it's implied. Look at verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So again, Paul preaches Christ from the scriptures. They receive it. And then they examine the scriptures to see if he's right, to see if these things really add up. Why does that make them more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica? Well, Because they responded with rational examination instead of jealous defiance which we'll see in a minute, the, the contrast here between these two episodes is, is to send you a message that the best response to the gospel isn't jealous, irrational defiance, but rational examination. We'll see in a minute the response of the Jews in Thessalonica is totally irrational. The charges they bring against the church are not grounded in truth. They are not grounded in reality. They just want to bully people around. That's the way the world works. Here's the more noble response Consider the claims of Christianity seriously. Our faith isn't irrational, but very rational and built on sound evidence. It corresponds with reality. Examine the gospel message charitably and rationally, and you may very well find yourself persuaded. And that's next on the agenda. Some people believe the gospel. Verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Likewise in verse 12. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So some believe in Thessalonica, more believe in Berea. And notice, it's not just what some of your atheist friends might call the uneducated masses. You hear people talking like this, that Christianity is just a crutch for the less educated. It's for the weak in society. Actually, it says here that many leading women and many men of women of high standing in society embrace Christ as Savior too. Even the wealthy and more educated were finding the gospel compelling and God builds his church among them in Thessalonica. You can see how this might play rather nicely into Luke's message to the most excellent Theophilus. That's who he writes Luke and Acts to, the the most excellent Theophilus, a man with high rank in society. Hey, Theophilus, even people of your rank are finding the gospel message persuasive. These aren't the masses in revolt. These are rather influential people who find the message good and right and true. Consider it seriously. But not everyone believes The next parallel is that some people oppose the gospel. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, setting the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who've turned the world upside down have come here also and Jason has received them and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there's another king, Jesus. Now stop for just a minute. The deep irony is rather comical. Everything is peaceful until these Jews get wicked men from the rabble. The rabble would... You know, be like the lazy lowlifes who have nothing better to do than to cause trouble. Okay, they get these guys. They form a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They attack an innocent man. And then they accuse the Christians of turning the world upside down. And if that wasn't bad enough, the same guys do it again. In a different city, in Berea. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Question, who's really turning the world upside down? That's what Luke wants you to ask. It's not Jesus' followers who turn the world upside down in that negative, destructive sense. It's those enslaved to their sin who do so. Sin turns the world upside down. The gospel announces the true king who comes to turn the world right side up. So what you have here is really a collision of two kingdoms the church is the countercultural kingdom it's not that the people inside the church are morally superior but that christ has actually made them new you see we center our lives round a king who says the first will be last and the last will be first round a king who says the greatest among you must become slave of all round a king who was rich yet for your sake he became poor Round a king who commands legions but wraps himself in a towel and washes feet. Round a king who pursues his joy in serving his neighbor and clothing the filthy with honor. Round a king who loves his enemies by sacrificing everything. Round a king who speaks truth in the face of lies. And truly, his kingdom is upside down to the way the world operates. You see, accepting Jesus' kingship consistently and seriously will in fact transform you, will transform your personal relationships, will transform your business ethics, will transform your social ambitions and so on. And in that sense, it will appear to others like you're turning the world upside down. But that's because the world as it is needs to be turned right side up. Caesar couldn't turn it right-side up. No president has the power or moral uprightness to turn it right-side up. No one political ideology gets everything right to turn it right-side up. But Jesus has it all. Don't get me wrong. Jesus isn't vying for a throne on earth. He already has the highest throne in heaven. Now it's a matter of bringing everyone else beneath his perfect rule. But that happens not by embracing the world's ways of doing things. It doesn't happen through jealous defiance and political upheaval, which is how the world here combats Christianity. Rather, as we see in the lives of the disciples here, Jesus' kingdom advances through the humble, patient preaching and application of the gospel. You see it as churches are planted and people are gathered into into these assemblies where the kingdom of God becomes manifest on earth. The apostles patiently endure evil while speaking truth. Jason patiently endures evil. He's treated unjustly and yet still pays the fees. So they go free. Their goal isn't to defy Caesar unless Caesar asks them to defy Jesus, they're peaceful. Who are the real troublemakers here? It's those who refuse to submit their lives to King Jesus. It's not the followers of Christ. And brothers and sisters, it shouldn't it shouldn't ever be the followers of Christ who are the troublemakers in society. Sadly, history has its share of troublemakers who also profess the name of Jesus. May it not be so among any of us. Christ's kingdom advances through those who, like their king did for them, willingly sacrifice all to see others joyful in God. The final parallel is with Luke wrapping up each ministry with some kind of of resolve. Verse 9, Jason posts Baal to to keep things peaceful for the church. Verse 14 and 15, the brothers send Paul off to Athens rather quickly. And in both cases, they're applying wisdom that best serves the gospel's ongoing witness. So in the end, when, when we contrast Paul's ministry in Thessalonica with that in Berea we walk away with two major points standing out. One is that sin turns the world upside down. The gospel announces a king who comes to turn the world right side up. But he does this not through political upheaval and revolt, but with the humble, patient preaching of the gospel. And then two... When you're confronted with the gospel's claims, the most noble response for any community is rational examination, not jealous defiance. That's the bigger picture. But what else might we take away from from this bigger picture? I want to develop six further implications from, from from the message we just saw. And the first is this, renew your confidence in the gospel of Christ to save. Renew your confidence in the gospel of Christ to save. The church has one message. We've seen it preached again and again and again in every city in the book of Acts. And it is the gospel. It is the good news of what God has done in Christ to reconcile sinners to himself. Now, there are other ways they apply that gospel and how it teases itself out in life. But at its center is what God has done in Christ to reconcile sinners to himself. Jesus isn't just a hero who died for his own convictions, the gospel isn't just a philosophy to make yourself a better person. Jesus isn't just a feeling in your heart. The gospel is historically true and offers the person of Jesus himself who wins all God's saving promises for his people. Paul preaches Christ how he gets people to Christ differs depending on his missionary context. And we'll get to that in coming weeks. But preaching Christ remains central to his mission as we see it here, both in Thessalonica and Berea. Preaching Christ must remain central to our mission too. The gospel saves. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Would you be able to reason with Jews And Muslims and others like them who have kind of a general awareness and knowledge of the Old Testament, like the Jews did here, would you be able to reason with them from the scriptures and point them to Christ? Would you be able to show them how the Christ had to suffer and rise again? Could you point a Jewish friend to Christ from Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22? Could you show a Muslim how the promise to Abraham culminates in Christ? Know your Bible well so you can point people to Christ. There are hundreds of ways a biblical story connects to people's lives and offers them salvation in Christ. Our primary mission is to get the gospel message to our neighbors and the nation's. I know there's lots to discuss in the news. I know there's I know your Facebook wall is filled with all kinds of debates and fears. But when was the last time you shared the gospel? When was the last time you preached the gospel to yourself? When was the last time you preached the gospel to each other? When was the last time you shared the gospel with a lost friend or coworker or family member? Are you sharing it with those who never heard? And if not, what does this say about your confidence in the gospel? What do you think really saves the world? Your next snarky Facebook remark. How much stock do you put in worldly institutions to transform community versus the gospel? What would your coworkers say that you believe transform communities as they hear you talking day in and day out? Paul knew the message that saves. Let's imitate his ways in Christ and not get derailed by all the noise of our culture. Number two, in spreading the gospel, we must renounce worldly means and embrace the humble means of the cross. We must renounce worldly means and embrace the humble means of the cross. We must embrace the... What, the world, what to the world might be the upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom, right? to be great is to become slave of all. Notice the stark contrast between the world's way of doing things and Christ's way of doing things throughout the book of Acts to this point. Luke brings it up very often. Peter and John preach and heal... And the world threatens them. You better keep your mouth shut. The apostles then go on to teach and show generosity to the poor. The world imprisons them. Stephen offers salvation. The world stones him. Paul and Silas deliver a slave girl from her oppression. And the world wants to keep its money... And so it lies and it beats them. They preach the gospel again. The world slanders them, stirs up a mob, and takes their money unjustly. What are we seeing here as we keep going through the book of Acts? Well, on the one hand, we see how the world accomplishes its agenda. And it accomplishes its agenda like this. Hate, lies, and violence. On the other hand, we see how Christ accomplishes his agenda, love, truth, and self-sacrifice. You see, when we look into the lives of these early disciples, what we are actually seeing is Christ himself alive in them. Who was it that was crucified to satisfy an angry mob? in Luke chapter 23, verse 5. It was Jesus. It was Jesus going to the cross to claim victory over sin and save his people. And this same Jesus lives in his people. And he calls us to take up our cross daily as well. Christ doesn't advance his kingdom through worldly means, through fear-mongering, Through political one upmanship, through arguments not grounded in truth. No, beloved, we're called to humbly preach the gospel, even if it means our death. The gospel doesn't just thrive when there's a fair playing field religiously or socially. Or politically. It thrives when it's completely disadvantaged, like we see here. So don't stoop to the world's ways. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus in laying down your life to see others joyful in God. Number three find venues to spread the gospel. And focus on anyone willing to listen. Paul has the habit of finding a Jewish synagogue in whatever city he enters. It may be that Paul develops his strategy from theological convictions. He knows from Scripture that the Jews hold a privileged place in God's redemption story, and so we see this kind of come out in Romans for example Romans 1:16 he says the gospel is for the Jew first and also the Greek but several other reasons justify his practice for starters Paul himself is a Jew makes sense find some Jews Also, those attending the synagogue would be familiar with the scriptures, which is what Paul was trained in. And then he's also got a very unique calling to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, and many Greeks and other God-fearing Gentiles, like we've seen here, would meet at the synagogue. In other words, it's a rather fitting venue where he can spread the gospel quite easily, both to Jews and to Greeks or Gentiles. And once he does, he then focuses his ministry on anyone willing to listen. And we'll see next week, he goes into the synagogues and then he goes into the marketplace. I'm not saying that's the only way he, he does it. But in both cases, whether it's a synagogue, or a marketplace, or a house, he's always looking for venues where he can spread the gospel quite easily to others. And once he does, he focuses his ministry on anyone willing to listen. He gathers them into local churches and disciples them. And we should imitate Paul's pattern. What venues would allow you to spread the gospel? What venues fit your skill sets and giftings? It doesn't have to be a synagogue-like place, but it could be a classroom at a local school. It, doesn't have, uh, it, it could be uh, a ladies' group in your neighborhood. It could be an exercise class or a gym you frequent to befriend people. Right? I hope you're not going in there just to stare in the mirror. Befriend the people you're working out with. Maybe you'd serve best from your own home while extending hospitality to those in your neighborhood. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's a hospital room. Whatever venue is appropriate, just find one, and then focus your efforts on those willing to listen and hear more about Christ. Let me also add this: if you are physically unable, if there are things right now in your life that are out of your control, physically keeping you, hindering you from maybe going out and finding these venues then would you pray for those who are physically able to do this? Your prayers are just as valuable in advancing Christ's kingdom. Pray for them. Ask them, who are you sharing the gospel with? Take down their names and pray God saves. Number four, expect opposition and then apply wisdom that best serves the gospel's ongoing witness. Opponents to the gospel won't always attack for the same reasons. In chapter 16, it was greed, and here is jealousy. But when the gospel is opposed, don't be surprised. Right? Peter tells us later on, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So are we willing to be viewed negatively by others for the gospel's sake? Are we willing to be opposed as those people who are turning the world upside down, even though we know Christ has come to turn the world right side up? That doesn't mean we're called to endure every instance of opposition the same way. There are times when Christians can't escape persecution. They're in jail, for example. Or when Christians choose to stay and endure persecution. Maybe there's not a church there yet. Yet there are other occasions when they discern that it's best for the gospel's sake to leave a region. And that happens twice here with Paul. Now, you had churches that were already planted, but for whatever reason, his presence was provoking more opposition than was necessary. But that wasn't the case for the others who stayed behind and solidified the churches. We even see Paul, they, they get Paul out of there immediately, but Silas and Timothy, they remain a little longer. Whether, you, whether to stay or go, and who stays or goes that requires great wisdom. Christians must pray through these decisions. They must seek counsel from others involved in the work, uh, especially their local church and their sending agency. In every situation, we must decide what will best serve the gospel's ongoing witness and then trust the Lord to build his church. Number five. Expect the Lord to save others and add them to His church. Expect the Lord to save others and add them to His church. Yeah, some will oppose the gospel, but it's also true that others will believe the gospel. Isn't that what God's been doing throughout the book of Acts? The gospel comes in, some believe, some oppose. But some believed, right? Isn't that what God did for many of us? He opened our heart to believe the gospel because somebody brought it to us. He added us to his church, and now we gather to celebrate his glory and his salvation. Do you expect the Lord to save others, or have you just grown cynical like, what's the use anymore? Do you expect the Lord to save others? Paul expected it, and not because he was such a persuasive evangelist. He writes in one of the other letters that people thought he was an awful speaker. Paul knew God was passionate to spread the enjoyment of his glory among a people from every tribe, tongue, and language, and that's why he kept preaching the gospel. Because God is passionate to spread the enjoyment of his glory among a people from every tribe, tongue, and language. That's why he speaks. And that's where we're headed next with number six. Celebrate how the gospel unites all kinds of people into one body. The gospel unites all kinds of people into one body. Let's celebrate this. In verse 4, Jews believe, Greeks believe, leading women believe. In verse 12, Jews believe, Greeks believe, men and women of high standing believe. The gospel saves people from both genders, different ethnicities, and different levels of society and unites them into one body. In a day when our culture seeks to drive a wedge between various races, classes, and gender, the gospel is snatching out a people from all of them and gathering them into one body. One body united to one Lord and who share one passion to glorify God's name. How do we know the gospel continued such a work in these people? I mean, you, you might think, well, that happened here, but I'm sure down the road they eventually split up and everybody... It was hard to live together as Jews and Greeks. Actually, listen to the way Paul boasts of them in 1 Thessalonians, so this is months later... And he writes this of them in First Thessalonians 1, verses 6 to 8. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. <laughs> oh, might that be said of us. That, Redeemer, you became an example to all the believers in White Settlement and Fort Worth. And your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. In coming to the Lord's Supper, we have an amazing opportunity to celebrate how the gospel unites all kinds of people into one body One day we will stand stand with a host of countless others and say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain and by his blood ransomed for God a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. When you come to the table today, eat and drink to celebrate that day and also to renew in you a passion to live together in light of that day. But before we feast and celebrate the supper together, let's sing.